Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. It's your host Joe again. I won't do that long of an introduction today, but just wanted to give some updates. Uh, sorry again for the delay of this episode coming out. Uh, this one's going to be a little bit of a long one, longer than most normal episodes, and I didn't even get to everything I promised that I would get to in the last episode. But you should expect that, because I don't seem to deliver things on time, nor what I promised, but uh, hey, that's part of my charm. Basically, this episode covers everything about July 3rd, 1863, except for Pickett's Charge, which I promise I'll talk about on the next episode, devoting a sole episode to Pickett's Charge, and that's a Joe Barton guarantee right there. This episode's been a little bit of a, a while in the making, didn't exactly turn out how I planned it to, and uh, just the last couple of months have been busy, what with my child and my family and I went on vacation, which was nice, but I was not able to really work on the podcast much while I was gone. So now trying to get this done and then get to work on the next episode, which I want to have out by the holidays. Coincidentally, uh, today was the holiday parade in the town in which I live, and that was really annoying, and I had to delay my podcast recording by about an hour, because you probably would have just heard marching bands in the background. But anyway, folks, of course, like the Facebook page, which I'll link to in the episode description, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate five star, give us a review if you are able to, and without further ado, let's start the show. off in the last episode, it was the early morning of July 3rd, 1863. General Robert E. Lee spent the previous night assessing what had happened in the second day's battle, and planned to renew offensive attacks in much the same manner the next day. His top subordinate, General James Longstreet, had other ideas, and planned for either a flank attack or a turning movement that would force Union General George Meade's hand into attacking the Confederates south of Gettysburg. The two rebel generals met early on the 3rd to discuss the operations for the day, but there was a clear discrepancy between their plans. Although Lee's orders that he sent to Longstreet the night before were pretty vague in terms of what he intended for the 3rd day's fight, it seemed that he expected Longstreet's corps, particularly Pickett's newly arrived division, to be ready to get started quite early. However, this was not the case. When they met around 4.30am, Pickett's division was just then getting up and moving into the position Longstreet had designated for them. The hope that Lee had for simultaneous attacks on the Union flanks would have to be scrapped, which probably was a good thing. Federals were in pretty well-fortified positions and high ground on both flanks. Couriers were sent to find General Richard Ewell, whose Second Corps was to renew attacks on Culp's Hill that morning as well. The courier didn't reach Ewell until 5 a.m., by which time the Second Corps attack was already underway, and it was too late to disengage. Critics of Longstreet would contend that his slowness on the morning of the 3rd was detrimental to the Army's prospects for success. The lack of coordination between the 1st and 2nd Corps doomed Ewell's attack to failure. But in reality, this argument doesn't hold much weight. It's hard to imagine that the 1st Corps making an attack would have made any difference. Longstreet detractors would also assert that if he'd communicated with Lee in a more timely manner, then the attack on Culp's Hill could have been called off in time. This might have been possible if a courier had reached Ewell before 4.30am, but it likely wouldn't have mattered anyway because the Federals had planned their own attack at the same place at nearly the same time. 
The night before, the 12th Corps returned to Culp's Hill. Brigadier General Thomas Ruger was in temporary command of General Alpheus Williams' division. Williams at that time was still acting as the commander of the 12th Corps, because General Henry Slocum was still believed to be in charge of the entire Union right wing. Slocum and Williams attended the Council of War at the Leicester House, so they weren't present for the return of the Corps to their original position. General Ruger learned that intense fighting had taken place on the Union right during their absence, and that most of the trenches they'd occupied earlier were now manned by the Confederates of Johnson's division. Alpheus Williams arrived on the scene around midnight. Williams was 52 years old and was born into a wealthy Connecticut family. His father died while he was a boy, and he used his inherited wealth to obtain a law degree from Yale and then traveled through Europe in the 1830s. Upon his return to the States, he settled in Detroit, Michigan, where he became a prominent lawyer, judge, bank president, newspaper owner and editor, and postmaster. He was also involved in the local militia as an officer and helped organize a regiment for the Mexican War, though they arrived too late to see any action. Williams helped organize several regiments of Michigan volunteer infantry at the outbreak of the war, and through his many connections was able to secure a commission as a brigadier general. He was promoted to division command in the early spring of 1862 without ever having seen combat. His division was transferred to the Department of the Shenandoah and fought in Jackson's Valley Campaign. After the Federals failed to stop Jackson's force in the Valley, they were transferred to General John Pope's Army of Virginia and fought in another losing battle against Jackson at the Battle of Cedar Mountain. Following the Second Battle of Bull Run, Williams' division was transferred again back to the Army of the Potomac. He led his division at Antietam and temporarily commanded the 12th Corps when its commander, General Joseph Mansfield, was killed. General Slocum was put in permanent command of the 12th Corps following the battle, and Williams led his division, though they missed the Battle of Fredericksburg. They saw heavy action at Chancellorsville. Williams was a solid division commander, and despite his lack of formal military experience before the war, he was respected enough by his superiors and fellow officers. It does seem likely that the absence of a West Point education prevented further advancement for Williams. When he learned of the situation on Culp's Hill, he informed General Slocum. Slocum approached Meade about the possibility of launching an early morning attack on the Confederate II Corps, which Meade permitted. Slocum then ordered Williams to launch an attack at daybreak. Williams went about preparing for this assault over the next couple of hours. First, artillery located along the Baltimore Pike, Powers Hill, and McAllister's Hill would bombard the Confederate infantry. General John Geary's division would launch the main assault higher up the hill, where Green's brigade still held the breastworks. Ruger's division was on the far right of the Federal line, and their prospects for attacking were much less promising. The rebels in their front had the benefit of the trenches and a stone wall. The ground was a mix of open field, woods, and marshland around Spangler Spring. Ruger's men were to keep that end into the Confederate line preoccupied with feints and would be ready to exploit any advantage gained by Geary's men further up the hill. After going over the dispositions of his troops and informing the infantry and artillery officers of their intended roles, Williams attempted to get as much sleep as he could around 3.30 a.m. Before I get into the fighting, I do want to go over the troops that made up the 12th Corps. So far, I've only talked in detail about Pap Green's brigade, who were involved in the fight the night before. Green's New Yorkers still held the trenches on Culp's Hill. Over the course of the night, the other two brigades of Geary's division came up the hill in the rear of Green's brigade. I talked about John Geary back in episode 1 of this series, but as a reminder, he was a 43-year-old Pennsylvania native who had been wounded multiple times at the Battle of Chapultepec and had served as the first mayor of San Francisco and a governor of the Kansas Territory. He was also a giant of a man standing at 6'6 and weighing 260 pounds. 
Because I'm recording this just after the midterm election, he kind of reminds me of a, a 19th century John Fetterman, just without the black hoodie and cargo shorts. Directly behind Green's troops was the brigade led by Colonel Charles Candy. Candy was a 30-year-old Kentuckian, and like many officers in both armies, he'd served in the antebellum U.S. Army, but had the unusual distinction of being an enlisted soldier. He began as a private in the 1st Dragoons, where one of his officers was none other than Richard Yule, and then after an honorable discharge, he served as a non-commissioned officer in the 1st U.S. Infantry. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he was a sergeant major. He was given a commission as a captain, and for much of the early days of the war, served as a staff officer for General Charles Pomeroy Stone. At the end of 1861, he was promoted to colonel and given command of the 66th Ohio Infantry. He assumed command of Geary's brigade after his wounding at the Battle of Cedar Mountain, but Candy saw no combat for nearly nine months as he was absent during the Battle of Antietam, and his brigade was held in reserve at Fredericksburg. Candy's brigade consisted of four Ohio regiments, including his former command, as well as two Pennsylvania regiments. To Candy's right was Kane's brigade. Brigadier General Thomas L. Kane was a 41-year-old Philadelphian. His father, John Kane, had been the Attorney General of Pennsylvania and was later appointed as a judge for the U.S. District Court of Eastern Pennsylvania. As a young man, Thomas Kane traveled through Europe and lived in Paris for a number of years where he befriended French intellectuals, including Auguste Comte. Upon his return to the United States, he followed in his father's footsteps and studied law. But unlike his father, who was a Jacksonian Democrat, Kane had much more radical politics and believed in the abolition of slavery. In 1850, he was serving as a clerk in his father's court, but resigned in protest over the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, and his father had him put under arrest for contempt of court, though the Supreme Court later overturned his arrest. He was also noted for his relationship with the Church of Latter-day Saints. He offered legal counsel to Mormons who were looking to settle in the Western territories, and was a friend and advisor to Brigham Young. Young offered Cain the governorship of the Utah Territory, but he turned it down. All of this must have seemed odd at a time when the Mormons were highly unpopular in many circles in the United States. Many speculated that Cain had secretly converted to Mormonism, though he and other members of his family denied it. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he helped recruit the 13th Pennsylvania Reserves Regiment, better known as the Bucktails. He was initially elected colonel of the regiment, but turned it down due to his inexperience with military affairs, but would end up in command of the Bucktails later in 1861. Kane received several serious wounds through the course of late 1861 and early 1862. A bullet struck him in the face at the Battle of Drainsville, which caused severe damage to his teeth. The effects of that wound would linger for the rest of his life. The following spring, he was wounded in the leg at Harrisonburg, Virginia, and then had his breastbone broken when a Confederate soldier clubbed him with a rifle butt. He was captured and spent two months in captivity, but was exchanged for a Confederate cavalry officer, Williams Wickham, in August. Kane attempted to return to command of his regiment, but was too physically disabled from doing so. A month later, he was promoted to brigade command, but didn't return in time for the Battle of Antietam. The brigade was held in reserve during the Battle of Fredericksburg, and then three months later, the brigade was mustered out of service. Kane was assigned command of the new brigade in time for the Battle of Chancellorsville, but a couple of days before the battle, he fell off his horse into the Rapidan River. Not long after, he developed pneumonia and was still dealing with the illness when the Gettysburg Campaign was beginning. Despite the lingering effects of the infection, he willed himself to ride out of a Baltimore hospital where he was recovering in order to rejoin the brigade. He managed to avoid being captured by Jeb Stuart's cavalry and arrived at Gettysburg on the morning of July 2nd. Up to that point, the brigade was led by Colonel George A. Cobham Jr., a 37-year-old native of Liverpool, England, who immigrated to the U.S. with his family as a boy. 
Cobham's family settled in Pennsylvania, and at the time of the Civil War, he was working as a contractor in the western part of the state. He helped recruit the 111th Pennsylvania Infantry, of which he was named Lieutenant Colonel and then promoted to Colonel in command of the regiment. He assumed command of the brigade, which consisted of his own 111th, as well as the 29th and 109th Pennsylvania Infantry Regiments, when Kane fell ill. Though Kane exhibited quite a bit of determination by even making it to Gettysburg, his poor health would force him to miss most of the action on July 3rd, and Cobham would lead the brigade during the majority of the battle. To the right of Kane or Cobham's brigade was a large gap of three to 400 yards before the next infantry unit. Williams arrayed their line in this way to allow for the 4th U.S. Artillery, Battery F, commanded by Lieutenant Sylvanus Rugg, to have an open field of fire for their six 12-pounder Napoleons. On the other side of the gap were the two brigades of Williams' division. Because Williams was temporarily leading the entire 12th Corps, his division was commanded by Brigadier General Thomas Ruger. Ruger was 30 and a native of western New York, but spent his teenage and early adult years in Wisconsin. He attended West Point and graduated 3rd of 56 in the class of 1854 and received a lieutenant's commission in the Corps of Topographical Engineers. His army career was short-lived and left military service for the legal profession a year after his graduation. Nevertheless, he was commissioned as a lieutenant colonel of the 3rd Wisconsin Infantry in June 1861, and then colonel of the regiment two months later. He led his Wisconsin Badgers during Jackson's Valley Campaign and was wounded later that year at the Battle of Antietam. Afterward, he received promotions to Brigadier General and Brigade Command. He led his brigade at Fredericksburg, though they saw no action, and then was involved in the fight at Chancellorsville. On the left of the division was Colonel Archibald McDougall's brigade. Not much is known about McDougall's early life other than he was born in 1817 in upstate New York, and he worked as a lawyer in Pennsylvania and New York prior to the Civil War. Though it seems that he had no military experience, he was given permission to recruit a regiment of soldiers in Salem, New York in the late summer of 1862 that was mustered into service as the 123rd New York Infantry. McDougall was named Colonel of the regiment. Prior to Gettysburg, the only combat they'd experienced was at Chancellorsville. A couple of 12th Corps brigades were consolidated following the battle, and the 123rd ended up in Brigadier General Joseph Knipe's brigade, but Knipe, who was weakened by wounds and a recurring bout of malaria, took a leave of absence to recover, and McDool was named brigade commander before the Gettysburg Campaign. The brigade consisted of two Connecticut regiments, two New York regiments, one Pennsylvania, and one Maryland regiment. Half of the brigade's regiments had seen a fair amount of action over the past year, but the other half had only entered the army in late 1862, and Chancellorsville was the first taste of battle they'd gotten. Last in line was Ruger's brigade, now under the command of Colonel Silas Colgrove. Colgrove was 47 and originally from western New York, but had settled in Indiana where he worked as a lawyer, state prosecutor, and state representative until 1861. He was named Captain, and then shortly after, Lieutenant Colonel of the 8th Indiana Infantry, which only enlisted for three months. When it mustered out of service, he was given command and promoted to Colonel of the 27th Indiana, which he led from Jackson's Valley Campaign until the Battle of Chancellorsville, where he received a light wound. He took command of the brigade only a few days prior. In addition to his own 27th Indiana, the brigade consisted of regiments from New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Wisconsin. The right wing of Colgrove's brigade extended down to Rock Creek and essentially represented the far right wing of the Union infantry. The 12th Corps had one more unit that had just been attached for the campaign. It was a brigade of three regiments led by Brigadier General Henry Lockwood. Lockwood was 48 and had grown up in Delaware, the son of a farmer, who was successful enough that he owned at least three enslaved people. He entered the U.S. Military Academy and graduated 22nd out of 49 in the class of 1836. 
He was sent to Florida to fight in the Seminole War, but left the army only after a year of service and returned to Delaware, where he became a farmer. Farming didn't seem to suit him, and he spent most of the 1840s and 50s as a professor of various subjects at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. In 1861, he was named Colonel of the 1st Delaware Infantry. A few months later, he received a promotion to Brigadier General and was given command of a brigade that was sent to secure the eastern shore of Virginia for the Union. When the Confederates began their operations in June, three regiments were assigned to Lockwood. The 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade, the 1st Maryland Eastern Shore, and the 150th New York. All three had seen very little action in the war. Their duties consisted mostly of protecting railroads, depots, and areas of Maryland and Virginia where large forces of Confederates didn't operate. The brigade was essentially kept as a reserve in support of the more experienced infantry of the rest of the 12th Corps. Because they had just been added to the Corps for the campaign, they were not assigned to either of the divisions and reported directly to the 12th Corps commander. The Confederate troops that they would be facing consisted of Johnson's division, now at full strength with the return of the Stonewall Brigade. They were further bolstered by Daniel's and O'Neill's brigades of Rhodes' division, an extra Billy Smith's brigade of Early's division. In total, they now had seven brigades. These three extra brigades received orders to join Johnson's division at Culp's Hill around midnight on the 3rd and marched into position over the course of the night. Allegheny Johnson would oversee the operation. Though the Confederates probably did have a slight advantage in troop strength, at least when the battle began, the disparity had closed significantly since the fighting on the previous night. Even more troublesome was their lack of artillery compared to the Federals. The 12th Corps Artillery Brigade consisted of four batteries, and they were bolstered by Battery A, Maryland Light Artillery, commanded by Captain James H. Rigby. Conversely, the Confederates had no artillery within close supporting range on that sector of the battlefield. The fighting on Culp's Hill on the morning of July 3rd might be the most confusing part of the entire battle. It's hard to get a tight grasp on what exactly happened from daybreak to noon because the accounts of those who led the actions vary so widely. When historians tell the story of Gettysburg, they're doing so by taking all the possible sources and piecing together a conglomeration of events. Do we know what time a particular charge or artillery bombardment took place? Not always. Things we claim to know as fact are often just educated guesses. On this podcast, I try to acknowledge this by using qualifiers, or using a range of time that encapsulates the different claims made by those present. But it seemed that very little consensus could be agreed upon for what happened on the morning of the 3rd. When did the fight begin? Some claim that it was as early as 3.30, and some as late as 5 a.m. Others would just say daybreak. Regardless, I'll try to make as much sense of the battle for Culp's Hill as I possibly can. One thing that all could agree upon was that the Union artillery bombardment began the action, most likely around 4 to 4.30 a.m. General Alpheus Williams would write in his post-battle report, quote, The artillery opened with a tremendous fire at daylight at from 600 to 800 yards range, which was continued by arrangement for 15 minutes." For 15 minutes, 26 federal guns fired uninterrupted at the Confederates. Because the rebels had no artillery of their own to respond, the Yankees could concentrate their fire on the infantry. What happened next was unclear. Some Union officers, including General Geary, would claim that the Union infantry then left their entrenchments on the hill and charged the rebels. Some Confederate accounts would make similar claims, but Geary's version of events was a little unreliable and doesn't quite match up with others like General Williams, who wrote, quote, On the discontinuance of the fire, the enemy, without waiting our assault, themselves attacked Geary's division with great fury, 
And with evident confidence of carrying our position and getting possession of the Baltimore Pike, a movement of vast consequence had it been successful." Unquote. It seems as if Geary was embellishing, if not just making outright fabrications. Regardless, the Confederates beat the Federals to the punch, and began their assault almost as soon as the artillery was through with the initial bombardment. Both Jones's brigade, now commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Dungan, and Williams' brigade occupied basically the same ground they'd been on the previous night. Dungan's troops were on the right wing of the Confederate line and faced such a steep climb that they barely made any advance. Colonel Charles Candy ordered the 66 Ohio Infantry to march beyond the Union trenches and extend their line down the northern slope of the hill in order to pin the Virginians down and harass their right flank. Brigadier General Junius Daniel reported to General Johnson almost at the same time that the artillery bombardment started. He was ordered to bring up his brigade to support Dungan's troops, but could do little except fire at the New Yorkers at the crest of the hill. After a few hours, Johnson ordered Daniel to move his brigade further down the hill to aid in the final attack of the day. Because of the hilly, rocky terrain and the entrenchments, maneuvering was extremely difficult. Generally, the goal for infantry commanders in the Civil War was to find the flank of the enemy or a gap in a line and exploit it. Few, if any, of these opportunities were presented to the Confederates. Confederate soldiers still largely believed that pound for pound they were better than their Union counterparts, and that they would just have to overwhelm the defenders with frontal assaults. This proved to be more difficult than some expected. As the day wore on, the Rebel Brigade commanders realized the futility of these charges. Musket fire erupted all along the line. Again, the order and timing of these attacks is a little difficult to pin down, but it seemed that General James A. Walker's Stonewall Brigade was among the first to charge the Federal breastworks. Later that summer, Walker recalled, quote, At daylight, next morning, 3rd, Stewart's brigade, which was immediately in my front, became hotly engaged, and on receiving a request from General Stewart, I moved up to his support and became warmly engaged along my whole line in my right, extending beyond the breastworks, suffered very heavily, unquote. The Virginians of the Stonewall Brigade attacked the Federal line where Pat Green's right flank met Kane's left. Green's troops enjoyed the protection of the breastworks, but Kane's brigade was mostly in the open, though open might not be the best word to use considering how dense the woods were. Maryland Stewart's brigade advanced on Walker's left. They were also supported by Williams' Louisianans on their right, as well as Colonel Edward O'Neill's brigade, which had not seen action since the first day of battle. Fighting like this went on for hours. Occasionally, the banshee-like cry of the rebel yell could be heard over the din of rifles and artillery shells. The Confederates would approach the Yankee lines, muskets blazing away in both directions. And when the timing felt right, they'd advance hoping to find a weak point to charge. But basically, any time they got close, the firepower of the defenders would drive them back. Colonel O'Neill's Alabamians had been supporting the Stonewall Brigade on their left for the first few hours of the fight. O'Neill would write that they had been, quote, under a severe fire of artillery and infantry, but did not actively engage the foe until 8 a.m. when I was ordered to attack the works of the enemy, strongly posted in a log fort on the spur of the mountain. The attack was made with great spirit by the 6th, 12th, 26th, and 3rd Alabama regiments, under their respective commanders Captain Bowie, Colonel Pickens, Lieutenant Colonel Goodgame, and Colonel Battle. The brigade moved forward in fine style, under a terrific fire of grape and small arms, and gained a hill near the enemy's works, which had held for three hours, exposed to a murderous fire." Unquote. For their part, the Federal officers did not sit by complacently as the action unfolded. Unlike the Confederates, whose tactics were basic and uninspiring, the leaders in blue did their best to always keep a constant fire on the attackers and harass their flanks as much as possible. 
Though the Confederates were struggling to make progress, they were putting enough pressure on the Union defenders to make them nervous. While O'Neill's brigade attacked, General Geary called for reinforcements to bolster his line, which he feared might be overrun. Someone else, probably Slocum or Williams, had anticipated the need for more troops, and Brigadier General Alexander Shaler was ordered to lead his brigade to Culp's Hill. Shaler's brigade of New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians was part of the 6th Corps, and had yet to see action at Gettysburg. Shaler was a 36-year-old New Yorker who had worked as a stonemason before the war. Though not a professional soldier, he was active in the New York militia and was noted as a drill instructor and tactician. Shaler's brigade supported Geary's division as it held off waves of rebel attacks. General Greene had employed an effective tactical move the night before. When the troops on the front line grew tired or began to run low on ammunition, he would cycle them out for fresh reserves. This gave time for the soldiers to rest, clean the powder residue from their fouled muskets, and stock up on ammunition before going back to the front. Green would continue to use this method on the morning of the 3rd, with his own troops as well as reserves from Candy's and Shaler's brigades. As wave after wave of Confederate infantry crashed against the Yankee line, they almost always faced rested men with plenty of ammo. Several Union regiments were used as skirmishers to keep Confederate attacks off balance. On the right of Geary's division, three regiments advanced forward and engaged with Stewart's brigade. During the early morning fight, skirmishers from the 5th Ohio harassed Stewart's troops. To their right, the 147th Pennsylvania, led by Colonel Ario Party Jr., drove off the skirmishers of Stewart's brigade from a stone wall in their front. Party wrote, quote, At about 8 a.m., an attempt was made by the enemy to turn the right of the line of the entrenchments. They boldly advanced to within about 100 yards without discovering my regiment. I then ordered the regiment to fire and broke their line. They reformed again as a body and advanced. Their advance was checked by heavy fire they received when they broke and ran." Unquote. The open field between the woods and the stone wall would be named for party, one of the few instances of sections of the battlefield being named for someone other than a local landowner. Another Union regiment that harassed Stewart's brigade was the 20th Connecticut, which had been ordered to move forward and act as skirmishers in advance of McDougal's brigade. Their presence forced the 10th Virginia Infantry to divert their attention and slowed the attack. The Connecticut soldiers sacrificed a great deal in this effort, for not only were they taking fire from the Virginians, but they also took friendly fire from stray Federal artillery shells that exploded prematurely. Around 9 or 10 a.m., General Slocum believed that he could feel the Confederate attack weakening, hoping that a push from Ruger's division could turn the tide and drive the rebels out of their entrenchments. Slocum sent orders to Ruger, instructing him to attack the Confederate left wing in the low, marshy area around Spangler Spring. Ruger, who had a better picture of the situation on his front, sent a courier back to Slocum to ask for permission to send out skirmishers to probe the Confederate defenses. Slocum agreed to this. Ruger then sent a courier to Colonel Colgrove with verbal instructions to advance skirmishers to feel out the Confederate line and the prospects for a successful assault. Unfortunately, the orders were misconstrued. The game of telephone between the various officers and couriers led Colgrove to believe that he'd been ordered to send his entire brigade in an attack. Exactly what occurred is a matter of debate. Ruger claimed that Colgrove must have misinterpreted his orders, which he denied. Colgrove blamed the courier for giving him the wrong instructions. Some historians have suggested that Colgrove intentionally misunderstood the courier because he was itching to get involved in the fight and felt that this might be his only opportunity to do so. Though I've seen no evidence to fully back this claim, it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. 
The ground over which this attacking force would have to march was not ideal. In their front was the marshy depression of Spangler Spring, difficult terrain to march through that provided no coverage from musket fire. Because of the hill and the Confederate troops on their left flank, as well as Rock Creek on their right flank, the attacking ground was only wide enough for two regiments to advance at one time. For this assignment, Colgrove selected his own 27th Indiana, command of which had passed down to Lieutenant Colonel John Fessler. The other regiment chosen was the 2nd Massachusetts. When its commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Mudge, received the orders from Colgrove, he asked the officer to repeat himself. When he replied with the same order to attack, Mudge responded, quote, Well, it is murder, but it's the order, unquote. He then readied his base staters for action. Colonel Colgrove personally gave the orders for the 27th Indiana to advance. Quote, 27th, charge! Charge those works in your front! Quote. The Hoosiers marched forward into the swale, and then the open field. Rebel skirmishers on the east side of Rock Creek fired on their right flank. When they were within 100 yards of the breastworks, Extra Billy Smith's brigade unleashed a synchronous volley of musket fire that tore apart their ranks. The Hoosiers stopped to return fire, but they were outgunned and in the open. In only a few minutes, a third of the regiment was dead or wounded. On their left, the 2nd Massachusetts double-quick towards Smith's brigade. The Virginians poured on a withering fire, but the 2nd continued forward. Lieutenant Colonel Mudge was killed early in the fight, and his 2nd in command, Major Charles Morse, led the 2nd. The regimental color bearer was killed by the 1st Confederate volley. Four more would be killed almost the moment they picked up the flag. Private James Murphy managed to save the flag from capture. Though the Bay Staters made it closer to the Rebel line than the Hoosiers, their effort was in vain. Almost half of the regiment fell in the charge, and ultimately they retreated back to safety not long after. The charge of the 27th Indiana and the 2nd Massachusetts regiments was the one black mark on what was otherwise a resounding victory for the 12th Corps in Culp's Hill. Slocum deserved most of the blame for ordering the charge in the first place. While he admitted that the assault was a failure in and of itself, he claimed that it helped put pressure on the Confederates and turn the tide of battle in favor for the Union. In reality, it didn't phase the Confederates one bit and had nothing to do with the success of the Union counterattack that was about to come. Slocum also deserves some criticism for sending orders directly to Ruger, therefore bypassing General Williams and not following the chain of command. Perhaps the disastrous assault could have been avoided had Williams, who had a better idea of the situation, been involved in the process. The last Confederate charge occurred around 10 a.m. The battle had been raging for more than five hours, and they'd yet to make any significant breakthrough. Allegheny Johnson gave orders to General Stewart and Daniel to prepare their brigades for another attack. This time, Daniel's brigade would advance in Stewart's right. Lieutenant Robert McKim, an officer in the 1st Maryland Battalion, wrote that he saw both generals, quote, strongly disapproved of making the assault, unquote, though whether or not they protested the orders to Johnson is unknown. Both brigades advanced, and with help from the Stonewall Brigade on their right, they made one last push to drive the Yankees out of their trenches, but once again they failed. Junius Daniel claimed that his Tar Heels forced some of the Federals in their front to retreat. Whether or not this is true is unclear, like I said earlier, Union troops were being cycled in and out of the breastworks fairly often, so it's possible that he just misinterpreted this tactical maneuver as a retreat. He would write in his post-battle report, quote, Owing to the heavy fire brought upon General Stewart, he was unable to advance farther, and I was, therefore, unable to occupy the works of the enemy, unquote. Colonel William Rickards Jr. realized that the soldiers of his 29th Pennsylvania were firing too high. He ordered his men to aim lower, and the effect was, quote, noticeable at once, unquote. 
Private Louis Leon of Daniel's North Carolina Brigade recalled that, quote, It was truly awful how fast, how very fast did our poor boys fall by our sides, unquote. Stewart's brigade was taking fire from almost every direction but the rear. He had this to say in his post-battle report, quote, The left of the brigade was the most exposed at first and did not maintain its position in the line of battle. The right, thus in advance, suffered very severely, and being unsupported, wavered, and the whole line fell back, but in good order. The enemy's position was impregnable, attacked by our small force, and any further effort to storm it would have been futile, and attended with great disaster, if not a total annihilation." I find it funny how both General Stewart and Daniels essentially blame the other for lack of support. I think what it really says is neither were able to make very significant progress in the face of such a strong defense. One federal regiment involved in the fight with Stewart's brigade was the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade. Part of Lockwood's brigade, they'd spent most of the war guarding various railroad depots. The only action they'd seen before July 1863 was at Harper's Ferry the year prior when they surrendered to Jackson's Corps during the Maryland Campaign. After the regiment's parole and exchange, they'd continued guarding rail lines. In one of those cruel twists of fate, they'd end up fighting the 1st Maryland Battalion of Stewart's Brigade. It was a moment where family members, friends, and neighbors literally were facing off against each other in battle. Though the Confederate Marylanders were much more battle-tested, they failed to break their green brethren. Lieutenant McKim of the 1st Maryland Battalion recorded in his diary, quote, The men were mowed down with fearful rapidity, by two lines in front, and a force on the left flank, besides an artillery fire from the left rear. It was the most fearful fire I ever encountered, and my heart was sickened with the sight of so many gallant men sacrificed. The greatest confusion ensued. Regiments were reduced to companies, and everything mixed up. It came very near being a rout." Unquote. Colonel James Wallace, who commanded the Union 1st Maryland, wrote afterward, quote, The 1st Maryland Confederate Regiment met us, and were cut to pieces. We sorrowfully gathered up many of our old friends and acquaintances, and had them carefully and tenderly cared for." Unquote. The 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade entered the battle with 674 officers and soldiers, and approximately 104 were killed, wounded, or captured. The 1st Maryland Battalion had around 400 soldiers on July 3rd. It would leave with just over 200 alive and unscathed. When he watched the soldiers of his native state return from action, Maryland Stewart openly wept and cried aloud, quote, My poor boys. My poor boys. By 11 a.m., all of the attacking Confederate brigades had fallen back to relative safety. After all was said and done, some 2,000 soldiers of Johnson's division were dead, wounded, or captured. Throw in another 800 casualties with three brigades belonging to Daniel, O'Neill, and Smith. In comparison, roughly 1,000 soldiers of the 12th Corps fell in the defense of Culp's Hill on July 3rd. I think Alpheus Williams summed it up pretty well. Quote, the wonder is that the rebels persisted so long in an attempt that the first half hour must have told them was useless. Unquote. Counterattacks from Geary's division and McDougal's brigade forced the rebels to abandon the trenches they struggled for the previous night. And at least at that moment, the Union right flank was saved. About halfway into the fight on Culp's Hill, sporadic skirmishing occurred all along the lines. 
There was a particularly intense firefight between Union sharpshooters on Cemetery Hill and Confederates in the town. Really, the sniper battle had been ongoing since the night of July 1st and would continue until the next day. Just past the edge of town was a duplex that was rented by two families, the McClellans and the McLeans. John Lewis and Georgiana Wade McClellan had married the year prior and moved into the house just before John re-enlisted in the Union Army as a private in the 165th Pennsylvania Infantry. At the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, his regiment was part of Major General John A. Dix's Department of Virginia. If you'll recall, I briefly talked about Dix's command in Episode 6 and how he led it in an operation against Richmond from the Virginia Peninsula that basically went nowhere. Georgia was pregnant when the campaign began and gave birth to a son named Lewis on June 26, less than five days before the battle. Because her pregnancy had been difficult, her mother, Mary Ann Philby Wade, moved in with her to assist in the delivery and help around the house. The Wades had lived in Gettysburg for more than two decades, and Mary's family, the Philbys, even longer. Mary's husband and George's father, James Wade Sr., at the time of the battle was confined as a legally insane pauper at the Adams County almshouse. <laughs> James Wade is an interesting character. Little is known about his early life other than that he was born in 1814 in James City County, Virginia, coincidentally where I grew up, and he moved to Pennsylvania probably in the 1830s. Wade's reputation kind of alternated between that of a respectable citizen and local ne'er-do-well, the latter likely due to excessive alcohol consumption. In fact, the first time he shows up in any records in Adams County, Pennsylvania, came from an arrest in 1838 when he was charged with fornication and bastardy. What that really means was that he allegedly raped a young woman at gunpoint, and then she gave birth to his child, though the charges against him were later dropped. In 1840, he married Mary Ann Philby, and the couple initially lived in Bendersville, about 10 miles north of Gettysburg. A year later, he was arrested for burning down a stable attached to a local tavern and spent several months in jail, though again, the charges were later dropped. After his release, the Wades lived in Gettysburg where they rented a home and ran a tailor shop. James Wade also served in the Pennsylvania militia and was respected enough that he was elected captain of his militia company. For a while, he was a member of a temperance organization in Gettysburg, but likely relapsed and would continue to run into problems with the law. In 1850, he was arrested after he stole $300 from a local man and then fled to Washington, D.C. After his arrest, he was sentenced to two years at the infamous Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. A year later, he was released from prison, but Mary petitioned to have him declared legally insane, and he was put in the poorhouse, though he was essentially treated as a prisoner. He was listed in the 1860 census as a resident of the Adams County Almshouse and described as, quote, very insane, unquote. Weirdly, James and Mary Wade produced several more children even after his incarceration, so it's a little difficult to say what exactly his mental capacity was and what the nature of their relationship was like after 1850. He'd continued to reside in the Almshouse until his death in 1872, and he was likely there during the battle. Mary continued to live in Gettysburg with their five children and worked as a seamstress and often took in boarders to make ends meet. At the time of the battle, she was being paid to care for a local disabled boy named Isaac Brinkerhoff. You might recognize the name Brinkerhoff. I mentioned Brinkerhoff Ridge in the last episode when the cavalry division of David M. Gregg fought the Stonewall Brigade. Another of the Wade children was the 20-year-old Mary Virginia Wade, better known as Jenny. She was living with her mother and working as a seamstress at the time of the battle. 
Before the war, she had several friends in Gettysburg, including John Wesley Culp, whose uncle Henry Culp was the namesake of the hill where the battle I discussed earlier was fought. Another close friend of hers was Johnston Hastings Skelly Jr., better known as Jack. Jack's father, Johnston Skelly Sr., had actually worked as a tailor in Mary Wade's shop for several years. Following the battle, it was alleged that Jack Skelly and Jenny Wade were engaged to be married, but this was regarded mostly as a rumor until letters between the two were recently discovered that suggested that they did have some sort of relationship that was more than platonic, and one could insinuate that they were unofficially engaged. In one letter, Jenny was upset that Jack had recently re-enlisted in the 87th Pennsylvania Infantry, in which he served as a corporal, and another between Skelly and his mother showed that she disapproved of the relationship. Wesley Colt moved to Virginia before the war, and in 1861 enlisted in the 2nd Virginia Infantry, one of the regiments of the Stonewall Brigade. Culp's decision to join the Confederate Army remains a mystery. His own brother was in the 87th Pennsylvania with Jack Skelly. He was not the only person to move from north to south, or vice versa, and then join the forces of his adopted home. It could have been that he genuinely believed in the Confederate cause, or perhaps he felt extreme social pressure from his southern peers. Skelly and Culp would meet under rather sad circumstances at the Second Battle of Winchester, fought two weeks prior and discussed in Episode 5 of the series. Culp found his old friend wounded in the upper arm. Skelly had been captured during the battle and when he attempted to escape was shot. He told Culp that should he end up in Gettysburg to inform his mother of his wounding, and according to legend, do the same with his sweetheart Jenny. Well, where should Wesley Culp end up just a few weeks later but his hometown of Gettysburg, and when Allegheny Johnson's division passed through on the evening of July 1st, he fulfilled at least part of his promise by informing Elizabeth Skelly of her son's wounding and capture. When the battle kicked off on July 1st, Jenny was still at her family's home on Breckenridge Street, so she, her younger brothers Samuel and Harry, and Isaac Brinkerhoff all left to join her mother and sister on Baltimore Street, which was further away from the fighting. Ironically, it probably would have been safer for them in the long run to have stayed because the battle would drift southeast with them over the next two days. The house rented by the McClellans was essentially in the middle of a sharpshooter battle between dozens, if not hundreds, of Federal and Confederate snipers. Bullets were hitting the house constantly, and based on the account of Georgia Wade McClellan, it's possible, if not likely, that Union sharpshooters were posted on the second floor of their house. On the morning of the 3rd, Hungry Union soldiers of the 11th Corps came to the house, hoping the women could provide them with food, so Jenny went about making bread for the soldiers. Around 8.30am, while Jenny was kneading dough in the kitchen, a bullet burst through the door and struck her beneath the shoulder blade, went through her heart, and she was killed instantly. Who fired the fatal shot remains a mystery, though some forensic investigations have pointed to an unknown rebel sharpshooter in the Farnsworth house. Remarkably, Jenny Wade was the only civilian to be killed in the Battle of Gettysburg. She was initially buried in the backyard of the McClellan home, though later reinterred up the hill at the Evergreen Cemetery. To further increase the tragedy, nine days later, Jack Skelly would die of complications from the bullet wound he received. Neither was aware of the other's fate. Wesley Culp was also killed on July 3rd during one of the charges of the Stonewall Brigade on the hill with which he shared his name. His body was never found. Jenny Wade's death was portrayed as a tragic sacrifice in the name of the Union cause. Her popularity rubbed some citizens of Gettysburg the wrong way, as many felt that she'd done nothing to deserve the honors that the people and the rest of the country bestowed upon her. The death of Jenny Wade was a freak accident, and many residents of Gettysburg and greater Adams County would suffer a great deal in the aftermath of the battle. More than a few people resented that she came to represent them all. 
This might have something to do with her family's rather poor reputation thanks to her father's activities over the years. One particular person who came to despise her was John Burns, the town crank and sometimes town constable that joined Union forces during the battle on July 1st. Burns rather liked his status as the hero of the Battle of Gettysburg, and didn't like the competition with Jenny Wade. In a letter after the war, he all but called her a whore, and denied the story that she cared for Union soldiers during the battle. But all this over some dead whore. Besides the fact that she was potentially taking away from his own notoriety, he also probably only had negative associations with the Wades since he'd run into James several times during his days as town constable. Regardless, the story of Ginny Wade has endured through the years. If you go to Gettysburg now, one of the most popular sites outside of the battlefield is the house where she was killed, now called the Ginny Wade House. Cavalry from both armies arrived in Gettysburg on the afternoon and the evening of July 2nd. Some units even engaged in fighting, including the Battle for Brinkerhoff Ridge between Gregg's Division and the Stonewall Brigade, as well as the minor Battle of Hunterstown between Hampton's Brigade and Custer's Wolverine Brigade. When Gregg's Division broke off of the Confederate infantry, they fell back down the Hanover Road to where it intersected with the Low Dutch Road. That night, Gregg received orders from the Cavalry Corps commander, General Alfred Pleasanton, to move his division closer to the right wing of the infantry near Culp's Hill. Meade wanted the infantry's right flank covered and to be closer to the Army's lifeline, the Baltimore Pike. Gregg, however, was reluctant to do so, and ultimately only sent his cousin, Colonel John Irvin Gregg, and his brigade toward Culp's Hill. Captain William E. Miller of the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry of McIntosh's brigade recalled the movements of the Union Cavalry on the right wing of the army. Quote, Between 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning of the 3rd, to horse was sounded, and we were again in the saddle. Retracing our steps, we resumed our position on the right, but with a more extended line. Irvin Gregg connected with the right of the infantry line near Wolf's Hill and stretched his line to the Hanover Road, while McIntosh moved to and halted at the crossing of the Low Dutch and Hanover Roads. Custer's brigade occupied the ground to the right and front of McIntosh. Unquote. Custer's brigade had been detached from Kilpatrick's division, unbeknownst to Kilpatrick, to relieve Gregg. Gregg still wasn't satisfied, and his intuition was proved correct. Earlier in the morning, members of the Union 11th Corps spotted a large column of Confederate cavalry marching eastward down the York Pike, which indicated that they were heading around the Union right flank. Members of the Union Signal Corps team on Cemetery Hill relayed this information to Pleasanton, and the Cavalry Corps commander instructed Gregg to remain where he was, but ordered Custer to rejoin Kilpatrick's command. Earlier on the 3rd, Jeb Stewart had gathered four brigades of cavalry, Lee's, Hampton's, Chambliss's, and Jenkins's brigades. In theory, he had around 5,000 troopers, give or take, now under his command, but they were virtually all exhausted. Jenkins's brigade was probably the most rested because they'd been in the area of Gettysburg since the first, but they were the most inexperienced of his horse soldiers, and probably not used to the hard riding they'd been through since the campaign began. Additionally, their commander, Brigadier General Albert Jenkins, was wounded by a Union sharpshooter the day before. Command of his brigade passed down to Colonel Milton J. Ferguson, a 30-year-old lawyer from Wayne County, Virginia, now West Virginia. His regiment, the 16th Virginia, had only been formed a few months prior, and it was made up of horse soldiers from the westernmost parts of Virginia and West Virginia. 
Ferguson was elected colonel of the regiment, likely because of his high social standing as a county prosecutor. While Ferguson commanded the brigade, the man who primarily led them in combat that day was Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Witcher of the 34th Virginia Battalion. He was 26 years old and a native of Pittsylvania County, Virginia. Witcher had one of the more memorable nicknames of the Civil War, which was Clawhammer. Although the nickname makes him sound like some sort of professional wrestler, it was given to him because of his tendency to wear swallowtail coats, which from behind resembled that part of the hammer used for pulling up nails. He was also known for being a real savage person. Before the war, the Witcher family was involved in a blood feud with another local family, the Clements. His cousin, Victoria Smith, married a man named James Clement, but Clement's rabid jealousy of the attention paid to her by other men caused her to run away from him, and in subsequent divorce proceedings, her grandfather, also named Vincent Witcher, and several other members of the family killed Clement and two of his brothers. Afterward, the Witchers mutilated the bodies of the Clement brothers, but they were not found guilty of any crime because they successfully claimed that it was in self-defense. War often has a way of giving psychopathic killers a chance to hone their skills and get away with crimes that otherwise would land them in jail. This was incredibly true when it came to Vincent Witcher. He began the Civil War as the leader of a band of partisan rangers, or guerrillas, usually referred to as Witcher's Boys. The boys focused their efforts on terrorizing Union sympathizers in southwestern Virginia, southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and eastern Tennessee. He developed a particularly cruel way to lynch Unionists that was called Witcher's Parole. It involved finding a young sapling, bending it until it touched the ground, then tying one end of a noose to the sapling and the other around the neck of the victim. When the sapling was let go, it would usually snap the person's neck, if not decapitate them. Aside from this barbaric practice, Witcher was also known to just bash in the brains of captured enemy guerrillas and Unionist civilians with a rock. Witcher's notoriety for robbing civilians and committing war crimes became so bad that he was arrested and charged with murder by Confederate General John B. Floyd, the former governor of Virginia and Secretary of War in the Buchanan administration, though he was not convicted. He was also court-martialed by General Grumble Jones, but got off scot-free. Witcher's boys were officially integrated into the regular Confederate Army and became the 34th Virginia Cavalry Battalion, with Witcher as its commander. Jenkins' cavalry was a much different lot than the other three brigades of Stuart's command. Up to this point, they never participated in an operation like the Gettysburg Campaign. Most of their wartime experience had been spent in between the major theaters of war in Appalachia. They weren't fighting in large-scale battles, but usually raiding enemy supplies, battling similarly organized federal cavalry units, and terrorizing pro-Union civilians. They were mostly equipped with muskets, shotguns, and pistols, as opposed to carbines and cavalry sabers. Many of the members of the brigade did carry infield-rifled muskets, but a large portion of them only had 10 rounds per man. Just exactly what Stuart's orders were or what he planned to do on July 3rd isn't exactly clear, but from his own post-battle report, we know a few things. He wrote, quote, On the morning of July 3rd, pursuant to instructions from the commanding general, the ground along our line of battle being totally impracticable for cavalry operations, I moved forward to a position to the left of General Yule's left, and in advance of it, where a commanding ridge completely controlled a wide plain of cultivated fields stretching toward Hanover on the left and reaching to the base of the mountain spurs among which the enemy held position. During this day's operations, I held such a position as not only to render Ewell's left entirely secure, where the firing of my command, mistaken for that of the enemy, caused some apprehension, but commanded a view of the routes leading to the enemy's rear. 
Had the enemy's main body been dislodged, as was confidently hoped and expected, I was in precisely the right position to discover it and improve the opportunity. I watched keenly and anxiously the indications in the, his rear for that purpose, while in the attack which I intended, which was forestalled by our troops being exposed to view, his cavalry would have separated from the main body and gave promise of solid results and advantages." Unquote. Okay, so a few things to parse here. Stuart's primary objective was to protect the left flank of the army, but anything else seemed to be contingent on other factors. The commanding ridge that Stuart referred to in his report was Cress's Ridge, which ran parallel to Brinkerhoff Ridge, a little way to its east. Its name came from the family that owned the farm on the southern portion of the ridge along the Hanover Road. I briefly mentioned in episode 14 how they fled on the afternoon of the 2nd when they saw the approach of Union cavalry, and then the troopers feasted on the food left behind by the family. Stuart must have noticed the ridge and its potential use, as well as the presence of Gregg's division in the vicinity the day before. My estimation of Stuart's plan on the 3rd was to take possession of the ridge, observe for activity of Union cavalry, engage them if they were in the area, and be ready to seize the Baltimore Pike and cut off the route of escape for the Federal Army. Some historians have theorized that Stuart was an integral part of Lee's plan of attack on July 3rd. While Pickett's, Pettigrew's, and Trimble's divisions assaulted Federal positions along Cemetery Ridge and Hill, Stuart would sweep in from the rear and finish off the job, or something to that effect. This is mostly conjecture, because there's almost no evidence to even suggest that Stuart's division was considered an integral part of the attack plan. Lee did not use his cavalry as shock troops. As I talked about in an earlier episode, this kind of role for cavalry had fallen out of favor. None of the people involved in the planning stages of the July 3rd attack mentioned Stuart's division being used for this purpose. The one thing that does perplex me is why Lee ordered Stuart's whole force to move out to one flank instead of protecting both wings of the army. The only things that I could come up with was that the ground between the York Pike and the Baltimore Pike was more conducive for cavalry operations than the ground around the Round Tops. Perhaps Lee just felt that his right flank was secure and didn't need a cavalry screen. As we'll later find out, there was more Confederate cavalry a few miles to the south. Sometime after 11 a.m., Stuart and Jenkins' brigade arrived at Cress's Ridge, with Chambliss, Hampton, and Lee coming up behind. Stuart surveyed the rolling countryside before him, but saw no sign of Union cavalry in the area. He then ordered a gun from one of his batteries of horse artillery, possibly Griffin's, to fire off several rounds in multiple directions. Stuart never gave a reason why he did this, but there are two likely explanations. Major Henry McClellan, Stuart's chief of staff, speculated in his post-war memoirs that Stuart might have been signaling to General Lee that his division was in a designated place and ready to make an attack. This interpretation has been picked up by certain historians as evidence that the cavalry was part of a coordinated attack that I described earlier. Though this is possible, it seems unlikely. One, no one at the time mentioned this. McClellan only speculated this years later. And two, it doesn't really make much sense practically. How could Lee or Longstreet have heard these shots over the artillery fire from Union guns at the Culpsill battle, or other guns on both sides being fired at various times over the course of the morning and early afternoon? McClellan's second guess seems a little more likely, that these artillery rounds are meant to get the attention of the Yankee cavalry and draw them into the open. It certainly did get their attention. But in reality, the Federal Cavalry had already been alerted to the potential presence of Stuart's horse soldiers by the signalmen on Cemetery Hill. Custer scouts also likely spotted them before the shots were fired off. 
As the bulk of Stuart's cavalry made their way toward Cress's Ridge, he had several batteries of horse artillery deploy and they began shelling the Federal troopers. The opening stage of the cavalry battle consisted of artillery fire and dismounted skirmishing. As Federal cavalry and horse artillery began to appear, Confederate artillery began shelling them with great accuracy, but the favor was quickly returned. Lieutenant Alexander Pennington Jr.'s Battery M, 2nd U.S. Artillery, began a counter-battery fire that would prove even more accurate. Pennington's guns, and then later Captain Alanson Randall's battery of the 1st U.S. Artillery, worked hard to silence the Rebel cannons over the course of the afternoon. Rebel skirmishers under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Clawhammer Witcher advanced to the Rummel Farm, around which most of the fighting would revolve. John and Sarah Rummel were at the farm during the battle, and when Stuart's troopers moved in, they took John captive but let Sarah go to a neighboring farm. John was held hostage in the woods on his farm until the fighting had ceased. Later, he would seek restitution of $219.95 for the theft of personal property, which included his favorite horse, but was denied because the U.S. government refused reimbursement for things stolen by Confederate forces. Witcher skirmishers occupied the buildings on the Rummel Farm. Boards were removed from the barn to allow sharpshooters to fire upon the advancing Yankee skirmishers. Sent to confront them were skirmishers of McIntosh's brigade, who had relieved Custer's men not long before. As Custer's troopers were about to leave to rejoin their division further to the south, General Gregg requested that he stay. McIntosh's brigade only consisted of about 1,200 troopers, whereas Custer's Michigan brigade had roughly 1,900. Though Gregg was unaware of the strength of Stuart's four brigades, he was likely outnumbered four or five to one. The infusion of the Wolverines would more than double the size of his command. Gregg couldn't force Custer to help him. Though he was higher in rank, he was not Custer's direct superior, and the boy general had orders to return to Kilpatrick. At the very least, the two generals risked being reprimanded for disobeying orders, but Custer, a man who seemed to enjoy a challenge and regularly bucked authority, decided to join Gregg's effort to repel Stuart. Perhaps he didn't fear reprisal on account of the fondness that General Pleasanton had for him. Regardless, the move would work out in favor of both generals. Colonel McIntosh threw several squadrons of skirmishers forward from the 1st New Jersey Cavalry, who engaged with Witcher's 34th Virginia. Witcher extended his skirmish line along a fence that ran southwest from the Rummel Farm. Major Hugh Janeway and Captain Robert Boyd led the New Jersey troopers until they were within close range of the 34th Virginia. The two skirmish lines traded musket and carbine fire for a short while, but the high rate of fire caused them both to quickly run low on ammunition. Janeway's and Boyd's troopers were outnumbered, so reinforcements were sent to secure their flanks. On their right, two squadrons of the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry and one company of the Purnell Cavalry Legion came on foot and joined the fight. Custer sent dismounted skirmishers from the 5th Michigan Cavalry, who had the distinction of being one of two regiments in the army that were armed with 1860 Spencer rifles. The Spencer was a lever-action rifle that was loaded with a seven-round magazine. Michigan Governor Austin Blair ordered 680 Spencer rifles earlier in 1863 and gave them to his friend, Colonel Russell Alger. Alger, who was 27, grew up in poverty in Medina County, Ohio, just southeast of Cleveland. He was orphaned at age 12 when both of his parents died, so he was forced to work menial jobs and support him and his siblings. He managed to work his way out of poverty by first becoming a lawyer and then later getting involved in the lumber industry in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Alger distributed the repeating rifles to his regiment and also gifted around 80 to the 6th Michigan Cavalry, also in Custer's brigade. Major Noah Ferry led the 5th to support the left flank of the New Jerseyans. 
The 34th Virginia fired off a volley in unison, which tore through the ranks of the Michiganders. They wavered, and were in danger of breaking. Major Ferry attempted to stave off disaster. He cried out, Rally, boys! Rally for the fence! But a moment later, a bullet struck him square in the forehead, and he was killed instantly. Their superior rate of fire still proved effective, but likely led Witcher's men to expend more ammunition than they should have, something that Stuart complained about later. When the 34th Virginia ran out of ammunition, they were replaced by the 14th and 16th Virginia Cavalry Regiments. The rest of Stuart's division was now in the field, and skirmishers from Chambliss's and Hampton's brigade were sent forward. The Yankee skirmish line was faltering, but the Confederates had yet to truly break it. It's hard to imagine Stuart not being frustrated by this. He'd hoped that his superior force could sweep away the Union cavalry so they could move toward the Baltimore Pike and the rear of the infantry, but so far his plans have been thwarted by the stalwart defense of McIntosh and Custer's skirmishers. Around 3 p.m., there was a brief lull in the action, but this would not last for long. To break the deadlock, Stuart ordered Fitzhugh Lee to advance the 1st Virginia Cavalry, his old regiment, and perform a mounted charge. Major William Morgan led 300 cavalrymen down from Cress's Ridge and scattered the Yankee skirmish line. McIntosh attempted to send his only reserve regiment, the 1st Maryland Cavalry, but they couldn't be found. He had last seen them at the Lot House, but unbeknownst to him, Gregg had ordered the Marylanders to move back a few hundred yards into the woods east of the Low Dutch Road. McIntosh was distraught and allegedly, quote, gave way to tears and oaths, unquote. Gregg would need to make up for his blunder quickly. His forward skirmish line was broken, and the Confederates had the momentum in numbers now. He acted quickly and found Colonel William Mann of the 7th Michigan Cavalry. Though Custer would later claim that it was he who gave the order, by most accounts it was Gregg who bypassed the chain of command once again and directed Mann to counterattack the Confederate cavalry. Custer, however, would not be left out. He drove his horse in a gallop to the head of the column, and according to Captain James Harvey Kidd, quote, As the regiment moved forward and cleared the battery, Custer drew his saber, placed himself in front, and shouted, Come on, you Wolverines! Unquote. The squadrons of the 7th Michigan broke into a gallop and charged the Virginians head-on. They cut through the dismounted skirmishers of the 9th Virginia and sent them fleeing, but a well-timed carbine and musket fire from the 13th Virginia forced them to change course. The Michigan troopers then charged straight at the 1st Virginia, but both regiments essentially collided into a fence. Captain Kidd continued in his recollection of the action, quote, There was no check to the charge. The squadrons kept on in good form. Every man yelled at the top of his voice until the regiment had gone perhaps five or six hundred yards straight towards the Confederate batteries, when the head of the column was deflected to the left, making a quarter turn, and the regiment was hurled headlong against a post and rail fence that ran obliquely in front of the Rummel buildings. This proved for the time an impassable barrier. The squadrons coming up successively at a charge rushed pell-mell on each other and were thrown into a state of indescribable confusion. Though the rear troops, without order or orders, formed left and right front into line along the fence and pluckily began firing across it into the faces of the Confederates, who when they saw the impetuous onset of the 7th thus abruptly checked, rallied and began to collect in swarms upon the opposite side. Here we see one of the reasons why mounted cavalry charges were rare in the Civil War. The farmland that made up much of the surrounding area of Gettysburg was hemmed in by many fences of different types, posts and rail, worm fences, and low stone walls. Often the roads were enclosed by these fences, or a farmer might put them up to mark the edge of their property, or keep animals pinned in or out of a crop field. In Custer's report, he remarked, quote, 
The ground over which we had to pass was very unfavorable for the maneuvering of cavalry, but despite all obstacles, this regiment advanced boldly to the assault, which was executed in splendid style. The enemy being driven from field to field until our advance reached a high and unbroken fence, behind which the enemy were strongly posted." Unquote. Both the Confederate and Union charges were initially successful at driving away the dismounted cavalrymen, but their forward momentum was broken by the fence line in the fields between the Rummel Farm and the Hanover Road. The action was far from over, though. The horse soldiers from the 1st Virginia and the 7th Michigan clashed along the fence, firing carbines and pistols at point-blank range, dueling with sabers, or just trying to knock off an enemy rider with their bare hands. Just as quickly as the Confederates had gained the upper hand, they were again checked by the timely charge of Custer's cavalry. Confederate reinforcements from Hampton's brigade, the 1st North Carolina, and the Jeff Davis Legion were thrown into the fray, and the rebels regained their advantage. The 7th had lost all forward momentum, and were now greatly outnumbered by at least three rebel regiments. Custer ordered a retreat, and his troopers fell back toward the Hanover Road. Colonel McIntosh watched as the Michiganders streamed past him, and implored them to stand and fight. Quote, For God's sake, men, if you are ever going to stand, stand now, for you are on free soil. Unquote. His pleas were largely ignored. The battle was becoming increasingly chaotic. The mounted charges had scattered many regiments. Wade Hampton feared that the 1st North Carolina and the Jeff Davis Legion had moved too far forward and were in danger of being counterattacked, so he decided to recall them himself. He wrote this in his post-battle report, quote, Seeing the state of affairs at this juncture, I rode rapidly to the front to take charge of these two regiments, and while doing this, to my surprise, I saw the rest of my brigade, excepting the Cobb Legion, and Fitz Lee's brigade charging, unquote. Wade Hampton rode out alone to retrieve his troopers, but apparently failed to tell anyone what he was doing, and when he turned around, he saw the majority of his brigade following him. He had no idea what was going on, and only after the battle found out what happened. He explained in his post-battle report, quote, The charge of my brigade has been recently explained to me as having been ordered by Captain Barker, Assistant Adjutant General, who supposed that it was intended to take the whole brigade to the support of Colonel Chambliss, a mistake which was very naturally brought about by the appearance of affairs on the field." Unquote. Captain T.G. Barker saw that Hampton was riding out alone, and basically just assumed that he wanted the rest of the brigade to follow. Hampton hoped to stop the advance of his forward units, but now hundreds of horses were trotting toward him. They were joined by several regiments of Fitz Lee's brigade. Captain William Miller of the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry watched from his position on the Union right flank, and after the war would recall the awesome sight of the charge. Quote, a grander spectacle than their advance has rarely been beheld. They marched with well-aligned fronts and steady reins. Their polished saber blades dazzled in the sun. All eyes were turned upon them. Chester on the right, Kenny in the center, and Pennington on the left opened fire with well-directed aim. Shell and shrapnel met the advancing Confederates and tore through their ranks. Closing the gaps as though nothing had happened, on they came. As they drew nearer, canister was substituted by our artillerymen for Shell and horse after horse staggered and fell. Still they came on." Unquote. Before Pennington and Randall's batteries let loose, the cavalry in front cleared out of the way to give them an open field of fire. As Miller described, the fire was accurate and devastating, but it did not stop the charge. There was only one Union regiment that had not been engaged. It was the 1st Michigan Cavalry, commanded by Colonel Charles Town. Town was 34 years old and dying from tuberculosis. Ultimately, he survived the war, but within a month of Lee's surrender at Appomattox, he died from the disease. 
At Gettysburg, he had to be strapped into the saddle because he was too weak to stay on his horse alone. Cusser once again rode to the head of the regiment and once again yelled out, quote, Come on, you Wolverines! Unquote, and led the first in a charge against the Confederates. Captain Miller wrote, quote, As the two columns approached each other, the pace of each increased, when suddenly a crash, like the falling of timber, betokened the crisis. So sudden and violent was the collision that many of the horses were turned end over end and crushed their riders beneath them. The clashing of sabers, the firing of pistols, the demands for surrender, and the cries of combatants now filled the air. Unquote. The Wolverines had once again stopped a Confederate charge, but support was needed to drive them back. The units that had regrouped jumped back into the fight. Colonel Alger led the 5th and 7th Michigan into the melee. Captain Walter Newhall was sent to lead two squadrons of the 3rd Pennsylvania into the action. Newhall spotted Hampton's brigade flag bearer and made a beeline for him. He hoped to capture the flag, but the rebel soldier lowered the flagstaff and speared Newhall in the jaw. Newhall survived, but had to return home to recuperate. He died in a freak accident later that year when he drowned in the Rappahannock River. Hampton himself was heavily involved in the fighting and received his second saber wound in the head in two days. It only seemed to infuriate him. On a trip to Gettysburg in 1886, Hampton said, quote, I pulled my pistol and snapped it at him as I chased him toward the wood. Finding it had no loads in it, I threw it at him. I don't wish him any harm now, but then I would have liked to have a swipe at him with my saber, unquote. Hampton was wounded again later that day by a piece of shrapnel. After his third wound, he relinquished command of the brigade to Colonel Lawrence Baker and spent the next four months recovering. Captain William Miller was sitting atop his horse, with his squadron just behind him on the sideline of the battle. As the fight reached its apex, he sensed an opportunity to get into the fray, but hesitated because he had orders to stay in reserve. He wrote later, quote, My squadron was still deployed along the edge of Lot's Woods. Standing in company with Lieutenant William Rawl Brook on a little rise of ground in front of my command, and seeing that the situation was becoming critical, I turned to him and said, I've been ordered to hold this position, but if you will back me up in case I am court-martialed for disobedience, I will order a charge. The lieutenant, always ready to pitch in, as he expressed it, with an energetic reply convinced me that I would not be deserted. I accordingly directed him to close in the left, and Sergeant Craig and Corporal Weakley the right, while I should select a proper place for the attack. As soon as the line had rallied, the men fired a volley from their carvings, drew their sabers, and sent up a shout, and sailed in, striking the enemy's left flank about two-thirds down the column. Part of the 1st New Jersey, whose squadron was in the woods on my left, soon followed, but directed his charge to the head of the enemy's column." Unquote. Miller and his Pennsylvanian troopers smashed into the left flank of the rebel column, likely the 1st and 2nd Virginia regiments of Fitz Lee's brigade. Miller continued, quote, My command pressed through the Confederate column, cut off the rear portion, and drove it back. In the charge, my men became somewhat scattered. A portion of them, however, got into Rummel's Lane, in front of the farm buildings, and there encountered some of Jenkins' men, who seemed stubborn about leaving. Breathed's battery, unsupported, was only 100 yards away, but my men were so disabled and scattered that they were unable to take it back." Unquote. Miller's squadron continued their charge, and though it did become disorganized, they threatened Witcher skirmishers and the rebel horse artillery on Cress's Ridge, but inevitably they lost momentum and were no longer a cohesive unit. By this time, both sides had basically had enough. The two divisions went into the fight exhausted from weeks of marching and skirmishing. Three to four hours of skirmishing and mounted charges on July 3rd had sapped what little energy they and their horses had left. 
the timely counterattack at the 1st Michigan and smaller charges by the 1st New Jersey, 3rd Pennsylvania, and others led Stuart to order a retreat back to the ridge. Gregg, Custer, and McIntosh had led their cavalry in a brilliant defensive battle, but they did not have the numbers or the energy to pursue the Confederates. The battle on the East Cavalry field was over. Regardless of what Stuart had hoped to do on July 3rd, his plans had been thwarted. Once again, his cavalry failed to break the much-improved Federal Cavalry Corps. Brandy Station was no fluke. Union horse soldiers were on par with their southern counterparts and on their way to surpassing them in the near future. In the short term, the Yankees had prevented Stuart from getting into the Army's rear and cutting off its line of communication. David Gregg's leadership and proactiveness proved to be a decisive factor in their victory. He showed what an innovative and energetic commander that wasn't afraid to bend the rules or break the chain of command could do. At the time, Gregg probably didn't get the credit that he deserved, though most modern historians have recognized his integral role in the victory. The primary reason Gregg didn't receive the recognition that he was probably due was basically the fact that he failed to cultivate relationships with the press. If no one's writing about what you're doing, it doesn't really matter. While battlefield actions were certainly important, heroes were born on the pages of newspapers. At the time, and for many years afterward, it was George Armstrong Custer who received most of the glory. July 3rd would be an important day in the meteoric rise of the boy general. Just over two years ago, Custer's future prospects looked dim when he was nearly kicked out of West Point. Since then, he'd surpass every single one of his West Point classmates in rank in the U.S. Volunteer Army. Though he'd finished dead last, he was the only member of the class of June 1861 that became a general officer in the Civil War. He even outranked all but two officers in the May 1861 class. Coincidentally, both of whom were at Gettysburg, Brigadier General Adelbert Ames and his own commanding officer, Brigadier General Hugh Judson Kilpatrick. Custer was able to accomplish this in part because he was so adept at cultivating relationships with superior officers, politicians, and the press, but another reason was an anachronistic quality about Custer that made him stand out. Like I mentioned in an earlier episode, the Civil War wasn't quite a modern war in the way that World War I was, but it was a stepping stone in that direction. The old style of leadership where a general would command his troops from the front and participate in daring charges was dying. Sure, it helped the morale of the soldiers to see their leaders in action, but modern military leaders needed to be more like managers. Understanding logistics or knowing how to delegate authority to staff officers were becoming much more important qualities than leading a desperate cavalry charge. But the public still yearned for heroes. Custer was a romantic hero at a time when romanticism was giving way to realism. Officers like him were more fun to read about in newspapers and magazines than the more administrative-type officers that would come to dominate the post-war army. It's not surprising that the same kind of borderline reckless leadership that gained Custer fame in the Civil War would ultimately lead to his downfall a decade later. But before he made his last stand on a hill by the Little Bighorn River, he was the man at the head of a regiment yelling, Come on, you Wolverines! The East Cavalry battle was not the only mounted action of the day. 
Earlier that morning, General Jensen Kilpatrick received orders from Pleasanton that directed him to take his cavalry division to the south. Kilpatrick's two brigades would protect the infantry's left flank, anchored on Big Round Top, and disrupt any plans that the Confederates might have for renewing their attacks on that flank. Kilpatrick set out for Big Round Top with only one brigade, because as discussed earlier in the episode, Custer's brigade was ordered to stay on the Union right until it was to be relieved by Gregg's division. But again, as we know, it ultimately never rejoined the division. General Elon J. Farnsworth and his brigade of the 5th New York, 18th Pennsylvania, 1st Vermont, and 1st West Virginia Cavalry Regiments were initially the only troopers available to Kilpatrick. Attached to Kilpatrick's command was the 4th U.S. Artillery, Battery E, led by Lieutenant Samuel Elder. They reached the ground south of the Round Tops around 11 a.m. and went about scouting the area, looking for weaknesses in the Confederate line to exploit. Elder posted his battery on a hill on the Bushman Farm. The farm was owned by the Reverend Michael Bushman and his wife Amelia. Bushman was a well-known minister in the German Baptist Brethren Church, better known today as the Church of the Brethren. They fled the farm when the two armies approached on the first, and the buildings were occupied by the Confederates on the second. It was likely on their property where General John Bell Hood received his wound at the beginning of the second day's battle. Rebel pickets of Hood's division spotted Federal cavalry and made adjustments to protect their flank. General Evander Law, who replaced the wounded Hood, ordered the 1st Texas to form a skirmish line facing south that stretched from Plum Run to the Emmitsburg Road. Several regiments of Anderson's Georgia Brigade would also join the Texans, and there were Alabama regiments of Law's Brigade on Big Round Top that were within supporting distance. The initial skirmishing between the Rebel Infantry and Yankee Cavalry went well for the latter, but Kilpatrick was disheartened by two things. One, the ground that they were on was unfavorable for mounted operations. The area around the Round Tops was steep and rocky, and the areas that weren't covered with large boulders were spotted by farm buildings and plenty of fences. The second problem was that it seemed as if his cavalry would not be needed for the day. The Confederate infantry attack was not to be followed up with a counterattack, and Kilpatrick's troopers were essentially of no real use, aside from acting as a screen for the Union left wing at that point. Because he lacked Custer's large Michigan brigade, Kilpatrick had requested additional troopers if available. In fact, there was a fresh cavalry brigade that was somewhat nearby. It was the Reserve Brigade of Buford's division, commanded by the third boy general, Wesley Merritt. Merritt had just taken command of his brigade a few days earlier, after his promotion from captain, and they'd been on the periphery of the campaign, mostly guarding the Union supply lines to the south. On the morning of the 3rd, they were at Emmitsburg, Maryland, and were ordered to march north toward Gettysburg. Merritt also received word from a local farmer that a large number of virtually unguarded Confederate supply wagons, dozens, perhaps over a hundred, were parked nearby in a field north of the town of Fairfield, Pennsylvania. Fairfield was only about eight miles to the southwest of Gettysburg, and beside the tempting prize of the wagon train, it was a key point of the map to capture. The Fairfield Road, which connected the two towns of Gettysburg and Fairfield, was a vital route of escape for the Confederate Army if it retreated back to Virginia. The road led to Monterey Pass, one of the gaps to cross over South Mountain. Without the Fairfield Road, the rebels would depend solely on the Chambersburg Pike, the longer route of the two. Congestion on the way through the Cashtown Gap would slow their march and could give the Federals enough time to cut off their escape. Merritt was still under orders, so he could only send a small force, which shouldn't have been a problem if the wagons were without escort, as he had been led to believe. For this mission, he selected the 6th U.S. Cavalry, commanded by Major Samuel Starr. Starr was 52 years old and had grown up in the small town of Leyden in upstate New York, one of eight children in an Irish family. 
1832, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, which would lead us to assume that he was from a poor background and had few other prospects. The pre-war U.S. Army was largely made up of immigrants or native-born Americans from the lower economic class. He left the Army in 1837, married Eliza Kurtz of Philadelphia, and returned to upstate New York. But when the U.S. provoked a war with Mexico in 1846, he re-enlisted, and probably based on his prior military experience, received a promotion to sergeant, and shortly after a brevet promotion to second lieutenant. After the conclusion of the war, he was given a lieutenant's commission in the regular army, and would remain in military service for the majority of his life. Starr had two nicknames, Old Patty and Old Nosebag. The former was more of a term of endearment and a reflection of his Irish background. The latter was what many of his soldiers derisively called him because of his reputation for harsh discipline. The pre-war army was filled with martinets who would often use cruel and humiliating punishments to keep soldiers in line. Soldiering in the antebellum era almost solely consisted of frontier duty on isolated posts in places like Texas and Kansas. Boredom and loneliness often led soldiers to drink excessively, fight with each other, and neglect their duties. Like I said earlier, most soldiers were from the lower rung of society, and were expected to take this punishment without protest. Desertion was not even really an option, considering that they'd likely die in the vast wilderness or be killed by hostile natives in the areas around these small forts. Starr's most notorious punishment was to strap the offending soldier to the top rail of a fence, tie a horse-feed bag around their face, and force them to sit for hours in the hot sun, hence the name Old Nose Bag. He began the Civil War as an aide-de-camp to Brigadier General Joseph Mansfield, but shortly after accepted a commission as a colonel of the 5th New Jersey Volunteer Infantry Regiment, which he led for about a year. During that time, he was warned that his harsh disciplinary measures and verbal lashings would not be tolerated in the Volunteer Army as it had been in the Antebellum Regular Army. Several soldiers and officers complained about his behavior. This all culminated in an incident in the fall of 1862 where he saber-slapped a soldier on guard duty that he deemed neglectful. The incident was reminiscent of a scene from the movie Patton, where the titular character slaps a shell-shocked soldier whom he accuses of cowardice. Patton was also a bit of a martinet and dandy of his own era. Starr ultimately resigned from the army, but after a few months of reflection and some sort of religious awakening, he rejoined the army at the lower rank of captain, though he was quickly promoted to major. After the Battle of Brandy Station, he temporarily commanded the Reserve Cavalry Brigade and probably would have received another promotion, but the ascension of Wesley Merritt quashed the possibility and he was placed in command of the 6th U.S. Cavalry. So on the morning of July 3rd, when he was given a chance to perform a relatively easy task that promised a big reward, he jumped at the opportunity. Major Starr led his 400 troopers north across the Maryland-Pennsylvania border to the small town of Fairfield. He split the regiment into three columns and sent them out in search of the Confederate wagons. One squadron was led by Captain George Cram, Starr's second in command and second most disliked in the regiment. Like Starr, he was an old regular army officer. Private Sidney Davis summed Cram up pretty well, quote, Captain Cram was a curious, capricious man, seeming to be most delighted when the men most feared him. Whenever a soldier had occasion to speak of him, his name was invariably coupled with uncomplimentary phrases. The universal desire was often thus briefly expressed, except for the religious, damn Cram, unquote. Cram led his squadron to the west along an unfinished railroad cut. Lieutenant Christian Balder, a Prussian-born officer, led his squadron of about 60 troopers. After interrogating a rather reluctant farmer, they found the wagons, but not the hundreds they were led to believe. 
In reality, there were only about eight. Balder's squadron continued to advance and started a fight with about 40 or 50 Confederate pickets. The wagon teams packed up in the hopes of escaping. Balder's troopers pushed forward, driving back the small force of rebels for about a mile before a much larger one was spotted coming toward them. It turned out to be the head of General Grumble Jones's cavalry brigade, which had finally rejoined the Army of Northern Virginia. Both Jones and Beverly Robertson's brigades had finally caught up with the army after guarding the gaps in the Blue Ridge Mountains several days longer than they'd needed to. Besides keeping the Yankees out of the valley, they'd been instructed to keep tabs on the Army of the Potomac and quickly rejoin the main body of the Army of Northern Virginia once the coast was clear. They failed in both of these tasks, as the Federal Army slipped away in the last week of June and the two cavalry brigades lingered too long. But on the morning of the 3rd, the 7th, 6th, and 11th Virginia Cavalry Regiments, as well as Captain Robert Preston Chew's battery of horse artillery, over a thousand troopers and five guns in total, were riding toward Fairfield from the north. Balder quickly realized that his squadron did not stand a chance against this larger force, so he led his troopers back to the main body of the regiment to consult with Major Starr. Some of Jones's men pursued the Federals. Sergeant T.J. Young of the 7th Virginia Cavalry recalled, quote, we had gone but a short distance when we met a squad of about 30 mounted Federal cavalrymen who turned and ran through a lane with the post and rail fence on each side. Unquote. The Yankee horse soldiers slipped away. Lieutenant Boulder informed his commander of the presence of a large body of Confederate cavalry, but Starr was undeterred. Perhaps it was just his aggressive nature, or maybe he hoped to win praise for defeating this unknown force and capturing the all-important Fairfield Road. From there, they could get into the enemy's rear and further disrupt their lines of communication. Around 1 p.m., Starr led the 6th Cavalry down the Fairfield or Tonner Road and deployed half of the regiment across the narrow lane. The other half was dismounted and took up a position on a ridge that ran perpendicular to the right of the road. Not long after, the Confederate cavalry approached their position from the north. Jones spotted Starr's line of battle. Despite not knowing the strength of the enemy, he decided to attack. This is what he wrote after the battle. Quote, no estimate could be made of the opposing force, but knowing a vigorous assault must put even a small force on a perfect equality with a large one until a wider field could be prepared, I at once ordered the 7th Regiment, which was in front, to charge. Unquote. The 7th Virginia was one of the most well-known cavalry regiments in the Army. Earlier in the war, it had been commanded by Colonel Turner Ashby, a Confederate partisan ranger turned regular cavalry commander that made a name for himself fighting as a part of Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, during which he was killed in action. Now the 7th was led by Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Marshall. Marshall led his troopers in a mounted charge against Starr's cavalry along the road, but the narrow lane, hemmed in on either side by strong roadside fences, gave the advantage to the defenders. Marshall would write afterward that they, quote, moved up at a charge and found the enemy strongly posted, a portion of their column in the lane, and their other forces disposed on either flank, protected on one side by an orchard and on the other by a strong post and rail fence in front. They opened a galling fire upon us, driving us back and killing and wounding a good many, unquote. The Virginians were taking heavy casualties and feared that they were about to be cut off. Despite the urging from their officers to continue attacking, they broke into a hasty retreat. Grumble Jones was agitated by the Seventh's reluctance to fight, though it was largely his own fault for sending a single regiment in such a rash charge. But as his lead regiment came riding back, his other two were coming down the road. Major Cable Flournoy's Sixth Virginia arrived first, followed by Captain Chew's battery of horse artillery. George Neese, one of Chew's gunners, described the action, quote, 
We immediately put our guns and battery and opened on them, and our cavalry also opened with small arms. For a while, the conflict was fierce and hot. We had our guns in position in a wheat field where the wheat was standing thick, and nearly as high as my head, and dead ripe. It looked like a shame to have a war in such a field of wheat." Unquote. Despite his own lack of artillery and the increasing number of rebel troopers approaching, Starr was determined to fight it out. He ordered Lieutenant Tatnell Paulding to lead his squadron in a charge. Paulding wrote in his diary, quote, After my men were posted behind a fence by which they were to act, I saw the enemy in great numbers forming beyond us, and very soon received an order for Major Starr to withdraw my men as he was about to charge and would be driven back. The men were brought in as rapidly as possible, but being much tired could not go fast before they could reach the horses, our men charged. Unquote. Starr realized his mistake, but it was too late. Paulding's outnumbered squadron galloped up the road toward the larger Confederate force. Moments before, Grumble Jones said to the troopers of the 6th Virginia, quote, Shall one damn regiment of Yankees whip my whole brigade? Unquote. This motivated the troopers of the 6th, who shouted back, Let us try them! Jones then ordered Major Flournoy to lead them in an attack. With sabers drawn, the Virginians surged forward. The 6th made up the bulk of the attack, but they were joined by rallied members of the 7th and a company of the 11th Virginia regiments. Paulding's small unit was quickly swarmed by hundreds of rebel troopers. Their charge was almost instantly broken, and the survivors retreated toward the main line, firing at the pursuing Confederates as they fled. One unlucky Confederate horseman was Sergeant T.J. Young, who described the wound he received years later. Quote, Just as we entered the wheat field, where the dismounted Federals were, a bullet struck me right below the right corner of my mouth and penetrated deep enough to knock out two of my teeth and break my jawbone, which impression with me I have carried ever since. Unquote. Private John N. Opie recalled the charge of the 6th Virginian in the post-war years. Quote, the boys rode, saber in hand, right into the 6th regulars, sabering right and left as they went. A great many of the enemy were knocked from their horses with the saber, but succeeded in escaping through the tall wheat. Unquote. In spite of their predicament, some federal troopers continued to stand and fight. Federal trooper Charles F. Miller wrote in his memoirs, quote, Two comrades and myself, through sheer reckless excitement, not bravery, not even thinking our lives were in danger, confronted twice our number at no more than 15 yards distance, and exchanged salutations with them with Colt's Navy revolvers. We were not an easy prey as they had anticipated, as two of their number fell in the spot, and the other four putting spurs to their steeds fled. Looking around, we found ourselves alone. The whole command had vanished, and we were being flanked, so we dashed on after the retreating column." Unquote. Major Samuel Starr and Lieutenant Christian Boulder, the officer who first spotted the Confederates earlier in the afternoon, made a desperate charge with the hopes of breaking free to safety. Boulder refused to surrender and was fired upon by multiple Confederates, at least one of which wounded the Prussian. He still managed to escape capture and fled on horseback to Fairfield, where he was cared for by the locals, but died a few days later. Starr was also wounded, but he failed to escape. He received a pistol shot in the arm and a saber slash to the head from Lieutenant R.R. R. Duncan of the 6th Virginia. The latter wound knocked him off his horse. He was taken prisoner by the Confederates and held in Fairfield for a few days. The wound to his arm was severe enough to necessitate amputation. He spent the next two months as a prisoner of war, but was exchanged in September and returned to the Army, though he spent most of the rest of the war training new cavalry recruits. After the war, he returned to regular Army service and retired in 1870. The 6th U.S. Cavalry was almost completely routed. All who were able to were in the process of fleeing. 
dismounted troopers on the ridge occupied an apple orchard, which initially gave them good cover from the Confederate rifle fire, but now made it difficult to escape. Lieutenant Adnan Chaffee and his squadron held as long as they could, but the charging rebels overran their position. Chaffee and many of his men were taken prisoner. Lieutenant Paulding tried to make his escape on foot. He described his escape after the fact, quote, Finding it impossible to get away with my horse, I left him between a ditch and a fence, both impassable, and climbing the fence took it on foot through the field, pursued by half a dozen of the enemy's mounted men. They were soon on each side of me, and being much blown by hard running and seeing no possibility of escape, I surrendered to a man who was vociferously demanding my surrender, and who at once robbed me of my field glass. Unquote. Captain George Cram and his squadron had finally returned from their reconnaissance to the west. They spotted dozens of troopers riding as fast as they could toward Fairfield. Hoping to blunt the Confederate advance, he ordered a charge, which went about as poorly as everything else had gone for the Federals. His command was quickly overwhelmed, and those who weren't able to retreat were forced to surrender, including Captain Cram. Lieutenant Nicholas Nolan, one of only two officers in the 6th who managed to evade capture, took command of what was left of the regiment and fled back toward Emmitsburg. What began as a relatively minor side operation to capture supply wagons and an important road turned into a disaster. Of the 400 men who made up the 6th U.S. Cavalry, less of half of them made it back to the Reserve Brigade. Six were killed in action, 28 were wounded, and 208 were captured, and many of them probably were wounded as well. Not long after the Battle of Fairfield, Private Samuel Crockett of the 1st U.S. Cavalry wrote in his diary, quote, The 6th U.S. is cut to pieces. There are less than a hundred of them left, unquote. Ultimately, the regiment would continue to see service on the campaign. Most of the leaders involved in the Fairfield debacle would do their best to downplay the event. Merritt only made passing mention of it in his post-campaign report. Though he did say that Starr was wounded in the battle, he rather boldly claimed that the 6th Cavalry, quote, engaged a superior force of the enemy, not without success, unquote. Jones's Laurel Brigade suffered only 58 total casualties, all coming from the 7th and 6th Virginia Regiments. Though the absence of his veteran horse soldiers had been felt in the past week, they'd made an almost immediate difference upon their arrival. Merritt's Reserve Brigade continued north along the Emmitsburg Road toward the main battle at Gettysburg. They arrived at Kilpatrick's position south of the Round Tops in the afternoon, sometime around 3 p.m. Kilpatrick ordered Merritt's brigade to take up a position a few hundred yards to the west of Farnsworth's command so that the two cavalry brigades straddled either side of the Emmitsburg Road. Attached to the reserve brigade was Captain William Montrose Graham's Battery K, 1st U.S. Artillery. Coincidentally, Graham was the nephew of General George Meade, whose sister was Graham's mother. Merritt ordered him to deploy his horse artillery along the road, and the Union gunners shelled the infantry skirmishers of Ty Anderson's brigade. Sensing an opportunity to roll up the Confederate left flank, Merritt ordered the 5th U.S. Cavalry, commanded by Captain Julius Mason, to perform a mounted charge. The move worked well at first. The Yankee horsemen easily broke the Georgian skirmish line and forced them to fall back. But the perennial advantage that infantry had over cavalry quickly became apparent. Reinforcements for the 9th Georgia stopped the charge, so the Federals still had the advantage on the flank. A simultaneous advance by both cavalry brigades could have actually forced the retreat of Law's division, but as per usual, the lack of coordination and appropriate tactics allowed General Evander Law time to parry these piecemeal attacks. 
The ground around the road and to its west were more favorable for mounted tactics. The Merritt decided to dismount his four regiments, and all fighting on his front would be done on foot. He ordered the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry, aka Rush's Lancers, to advance toward the Georgians. The Lancers were strafed by artillery fire from Riley and Bachman's batteries, as well as musket fire from the infantry. To their left, the 1st, 2nd, and 5th U.S. Cavalry regiments continued to move against the Confederate right wing. General Law arrived on the scene, having originally been closer to Big Round Top, and personally led two of Anderson's regiments, the 11th and 59th Georgia, against Merritt's dismounted cavalry. The Federal horse soldiers held their ground for as long as they could, but the well-timed infantry attack drove them back toward the south. While Merritt's brigade was attacking and then being attacked, to the east of the Emmitsburg Road, Kilpatrick arrayed the regiments of Farnsworth's brigade. The 18th Pennsylvania on the far left, then the 1st West Virginia and the 1st Vermont Regiment on the far right, with the 5th New York in the rear guarding Elder's Battery. Opposing Farnsworth's brigade was a long skirmish line that stretched from the Emmitsburg Road all the way to Big Round Top that mostly consisted of the 1st Texas Infantry. Captain Henry C. Parsons of the 1st Vermont Cavalry explained General Kilpatrick's actions after the war. Quote, Kilpatrick's orders were to press the enemy, to threaten him at every point, and to strike at the first opportunity, with an emphatic intimation that the best battle news could be brought by the wind. His opportunity had now come. If he could bring on a battle, drive back the enemy by breaking their line on Big Round Top, Meade's infantry could surely drive them into the valley, and then the 5,000 cavalry in reserve could strike the decisive blow." Unquote. Kilpatrick first selected the 1st West Virginia to attack what he felt was the weak point of the Texan skirmish line near its center. Captain Parsons continued with his recollection, quote, The 1st West Virginia charged at our left, in front, down the open valley, in the direction but to the right of the Bushman House, upon the 1st Texas Regiment, which was in line behind a rail fence that had been staked and bound with wives. A thin line shot forward and attempted to throw the rails, tugging at the stakes, cutting with their sabers, and failing in the vain effort. The regiment came on in magnificent style and received a deadly volley before which it recoiled, rallied, and charged the second time, and fell back with great loss. Unquote. The mountaineers had failed to break through the line. Whereas the ground to their west was mostly open, the eastern side of the Emmitsburg Road was filled with fences, farm buildings, and the rocky base of Big Round Top. Mounted charges seemed destined to fail. Kilpatrick, however, was undeterred. He ordered a second charge, this time with the bulk of Farnsworth's brigade. Farnsworth was disturbed by the order, though to what degree is uncertain. Captain Parsons alleged that the two generals had a heated discussion that ended with Farnsworth reluctantly agreeing to lead the charge, but only under the condition that Kilpatrick would, quote, take the responsibility, unquote. But most other accounts don't back up Parsons' assertion. Regardless, Farnsworth would lead the attack personally. With him was one battalion of the 1st Vermont Cavalry. To his right, Captain Parsons led another battalion of the Vermonters, and to their left, the 18th Pennsylvania would make a demonstrative attack to draw fire away from the main thrust. The charge of the 18th Pennsylvania was barely underway when Confederate artillery fire tore through its ranks, and just as quickly as the demonstration had begun, the troopers retreated southward to safety. Captain Parsons led his battalion in a charge that initially had some success. They split a gap through the Rebel skirmish line and charged toward Big Round Top. Rebel artillery shells whizzed overhead, just barely missing the Vermonters. Captain James C. Jones of the 4th Alabama recalled, quote, I was ordered to face about to resist the cavalry. We marched rapidly up to the rear, over the rocks, and the Vermonters were upon us before we could form. 
They were within a few paces when we gave the order to fire, unquote. Lieutenant Turner Vaughn of Company C, 4th Alabama, shouted, quote, Cavalry, boys, cavalry! This is no fight, only a frolic! Give it to them! Unquote. The Alabamians fired two volleys. The first mostly passed over the heads of the federal troopers. The second was better aimed and managed to kill or wound several. Parsons veered his horse away and led his battalion in a wide loop to escape the musket fire. He attempted to connect with the battalion led by General Farnsworth, but the chaos of the battle and the fire from the rebel infantry coming from all directions prevented him from doing so. Farnsworth's charge also broke through the first Texas skirmish line, and then subsequently rode down Colonel William Oates's 15th Alabama Infantry, which didn't have enough time to form up a solid line to deliver a musket volley. Farnsworth and the Vermonters continued riding northward until Confederate infantry and artillery fire began to tear them apart. The 9th Georgia, which had just helped repulse Merritt's attack, performed an about-face and unleashed a devastating volley upon the 1st Vermont. Most of the Federal attackers veered to the east and tried to loop back to the south where they'd have to ride through the skirmish line of the 1st Texas again to reach safety. A Confederate gun fired a shell that burst right by Farnsworth's horse, killing the animal and sending him hurtling to the ground. Probably dazed and a little confused, he rose up and a Vermont trooper gave him another horse. With a small entourage with him, Farnsworth attempted to escape, but instead rode toward the rebel infantry. His second horse was killed, and his chance of escape had closed, but the newly promoted general refused to surrender. He received five wounds from Confederate miniballs. Colonel Oates claimed that the surrounded general took out a pistol and shot himself to avoid capture, but this has been disputed by historians, some of whom contend that he died of his wounds or was killed by another Confederate soldier because of his refusal to surrender. Elon Farnsworth ended up as the unlucky one of the three boy generals. He was technically not even a general because he died before his nomination to Brigadier General could be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. It's unknowable what his future might have held had he not been killed on July 3rd, but looking at the subsequent careers of Generals Custer and Merritt, it seemed as if a promising future was cut short. Both of them would continue their military careers after the Civil War, albeit to mixed results. Kilpatrick once again did justice to his nickname of Kill Cavalry. In his report on the Gettysburg Campaign written later that summer, he wrote of their losses on July 3rd, quote, We lost four officers killed, 13 wounded, and four missing, 34 enlisted men killed, 138 wounded, and 117 missing, making an aggregate of 319 killed, wounded, and missing. In this battle, the division lost many brave and gallant officers. Among the list will be found the name Farnsworth, Short but most glorious was his career general. On June 29th and on the 30th, he baptized his star in blood. And on July 3rd, for the honor of his young brigade and the glory of his corps, he gave his life. At the head of his men, at the very muzzles of the enemy's guns, he fell with many mortal wounds. We can say of him, in the language of another, good soldier, faithful friend, great heart, hail and farewell, unquote. The cavalry battles of July 3rd were mostly inconclusive, with minor exceptions. The Confederates managed to keep the road to Monterey Pass open. Gregg and Custer prevented Stuart's force from seizing the Baltimore Pike and running amok behind Union lines. Otherwise, no significant ground was gained or lost. Casualties were light in comparison to the two Confederate infantry assaults on the third day's battle. Pickett's charge is usually considered to be the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, but in reality, the charge of Farnsworth's brigade was the true end of the battle. And the end of the fighting on the South Cavalry Field will mark the end of this episode. 
This one ran longer than I had anticipated, which kind of is a running theme of this podcast. I know last time I promised to get to Pickett's Charge on this episode, but ended up feeling that it needed its own standalone episode, which I promise will be coming soon. Until then, thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, history. Upon a flapping stallion And giving orders to his men I guess there was a million Yankee Doodle keeps it up Yankee Doodle dandy Mind the music and the step And with the girls be handy And then the feathers on his hat They look so kind of fine I wanted personally to get To get to my Jemimey And there they had a swamping gun As big as a log of maple On a juicy little cart A load for father's cattle Yankee Doodle keep it up Yankee Doodle dandy Mind the music and the step And with the girls be handy Yankee Doodle Yankee Doodle Dandy Mind the music and the step and with the dance